House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, joining us, a uh, special guest, we've got Laura Nyrider. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Laura, first of all, uh, before we get into some of this good stuff that you've been doing, um, let's talk about you. Now, how did you get involved in being in the innocent sort of project and helping wrongful convictions? Where did that come from? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it's a question that actually has everything to do with my representation of Brendan Dassey, whose story was told in the Netflix series Making a Murderer. For me, it goes way back, goes back 13 years when I was a law student here at Northwestern University in Chicago. And I was getting near the end of law school and I thought I had my whole life figured out, right? I was going to be a business lawyer. That was my plan. I had a job lined up after graduation and everything. And my last year of law school, on a whim, I decided to sign up for a class on wrongful convictions. Um, taught by Steve Drizzen. Now, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about, you know, criminal law. I knew nothing about the justice system. I certainly knew nothing about wrongful conviction. But this just so happened to be about four months after Brendan Dassey had been convicted in Wisconsin at trial of raping and murdering Teresa Halbach. And my professor, Steve, had just agreed to handle Brendan Dassey's appeal because he's an expert on false confessions. And so I remember it pretty well. A couple weeks into fall semester, Steve called me into his office, and he said, I've just gotten involved in the case of a young man from Wisconsin, 16 years old, intellectually disabled, who confessed to a murder that, that I don't think he committed. And he handed me the interrogation videos of Brendan Dassey, the same videos that, like, years later would end up in Making a Murderer. And he told me to go home and watch them. So I go home. I sit down on my couch. I take out my laptop. I put in these DVDs. And I, and I watch them all from start to finish. And my heart broke. Because I saw two adult police officers manipulating a 16-year-old special education student mm -hmm. into confessing to a murder that he couldn't even describe. And I knew... I couldn't walk away. So that, that did it for me. I did graduate, <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> and I came back to Northwestern um, within a few months to start building, alongside Steve, the Center on Wrongful Convictions, where we've been representing Brendan and a lot of other people just like him ever since. That's pretty impressive. Now, the, um, the, the confession itself, um, now there is a lot of false confessions uh, that, happen you know and uh, for different reasons sometimes it's the interrogator sometimes it's just the person giving the confession um, I find that one of the biggest things uh, when we do shows covering that subject that people actually disagree with at times uh, so how do you explain it to people that say how I would never confess to something like the killing these two people and they, they kind of give you that attitude how do you answer that yeah it's such a good question it's exactly the right question to ask why would anyone confess to a crime they didn't commit especially of course something as as brutal as rape or murder 
Um, and of course, all of us think that, that I wouldn't do that. What's the matter with this person who did, right? Yeah. So this is part of what fascinated me as I started learning about false confessions and police interrogations. It turns out that the answer to this question, why would anyone falsely confess, has a lot to do with the psychology of the interrogation room. It has a lot to do with the psychological tactics that police officers are trained to use inside the interrogation room, right? Basically speaking, um, interrogation has two phases, right? The first phase is about reducing a suspect down to hopelessness. You're caught. You're trapped. You're cornered. You have no way out. Your life is over. Um, you know, you're going down for this. And then the second half is about offering confession as a life raft, right? You're caught, but... If you confess, people will understand that you're a good person, that you have remorse, they'll want to help you, they'll see that you're cooperating, uh, and so on. Um, but what you see in a lot of these interrogations that result in false confessions, and I have watched hundreds of these videos and represented dozens of these people, is you see this basic structure of interrogation get cranked up, get sort of amped up in ways that would affect any of us. So you'll see, for example, police officers lying about the evidence against a suspect, which most people don't know, is perfectly legal in the United States. Not, not many other countries, but it's totally legal here. So you'll see officers saying, you know, you're trying to tell us you're innocent. We found your DNA at the scene. We found your fingerprints on the gun. And you can see the suspect start to think to themselves, my God, how is this possible? I've never been at this crime scene, but this cop says he's got my DNA. He really thinks I did this, right? What am I going to do? So you see that those sort of lies in the interrogation room, and then once the suspect feels cornered, trapped, hopeless, uh, you see officers say things like, look, if you don't confess, you'll have the death penalty, or you'll get life in prison. But if you do confess, we'll be able to help you, and so on. And you can see how these tactics combine over the course of many hours, sometimes overnight, to make a suspect think they've got no way out of this horrific situation but to confess. These are really powerful tactics. They are very good at getting true confessions from guilty people. But they are so powerful that they can also get false confessions. So, so what's the answer to that? Like, how can we, um, you know, because without, I don't want to attack on the police, but there's always, um, there's a lot of that going on. But how is it that um, they can make that work better? Like, how can we actually um, get interrogation to happen, but without the lying and without that stuff? Like, what? I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but how how can we fix so, this? Yeah, how can we fix this? How can we do better? And that's exactly the right question to ask. You know, one of the things that I do that I'm proudest of is I work really closely with police and prosecutors. You know, I'm not about about attacking or, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. What I'm about is learning from these cases. Because at the end of the day, nobody wants an innocent person behind bars while the guilty person is out on the street. Nobody wants that. So that's a big part of what I do is I, I gather these interrogation videos, I study these cases, and I work really closely with law enforcement to figure out better ways of doing things, right? And it turns out that when you look at these cases, you study them, you don't need to lie about evidence in the interrogation room to get a confession, Right? You don't need to use death threats. There are way better techniques that are out there that are more based on rapport building, that are more based on conversational uh, techniques that are very good at solving crimes that are being used in other countries all the time 
you know, one of the fascinating things about the techniques that I described, the way interrogation works right now, like in all 50 states, these are really commonly used interrogation techniques. One of the fascinating things is that these things, these techniques were developed like 70 years ago, in the 40s and the 50s. And at the time, they were thought of as revolutionary because they replaced physical abuse in the interrogation room, right? It was like the, the kinder, gentler way of, of getting at the truth. But what's interesting is now we've had another sort of leak in our thinking now that DNA has been invented. Turns out we are proving confessions false using DNA at a rate that's much higher than anybody ever thought and under circumstances that are different than anybody thought before. So it's time for us to learn from what these cases can tell us, from what the DNA revolution can tell us, and it's time to uh, work together to, you know, move this forward. You know, when you go back to the um, Brendan Dassey and uh, that case, um, there's also kind of a cult of personality. Like everyone that was involved in that making a murderer, it really goes by their personality and how they're addressed. Um, and I take that as you look at Ken Kratz, right? Um, the majority of people that watch the show absolutely hate him. And they say a lot of bad things about him. And, I, I, you know, he's been on the show two or three times he still swears by Brendan Dassey being involved. So do you think that do you think that he really believes that or do you think he just can't let go of it or because it it hurts his 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 own persona. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. And you know, I can't speak to, to what's in somebody else's head of course, but what I can say is when you have worked on as many false confession cases as I have and that my colleagues and I have, right? And these are, these are cases where confessions have been proven false by DNA, cases where we know they're false. You see exactly the same kinds of things play out in those cases. You see old-school law enforcement who may not necessarily mean any, any harm whatsoever, who, who may really want to get the real perpetrator, keep them behind bars. Old-school law enforcement having a hard time adjusting to this new reality where false confessions really happen. They happen under circumstances that are different than you think. It doesn't take physical abuse, especially for someone like Brendan Dassey. You know, it doesn't take heavy-handed techniques. Brendan was 16 and in special ed. He was in 10th grade. And, you know, one of his special ed accommodations in school, in the classroom, was that he needed an adult to sit with him so that he could understand the words the teachers were saying to him. His disabilities are really verbal. He has a really hard time understanding spoken words. So he needed, needed this adult with him in the classroom to help him, you know, cope with that. And when you put a kid like that inside the interrogation room and you b- bombard him with five to six questions per minute for hours and hours and hours with no adult, no lawyer, no parent, no nothing by his side, you know, these are exactly the kind of circumstances that you see in hundreds of cases across the country that can lead to false confessions. You know, and Brendan, and of course that sort of key moment, one of the hardest, uh, but also most important moments that was shown in Making a Murderer from Brendan's interrogation when he says, when, you know, when he is trying to guess how Teresa Halbach was killed and he can't get it right, right? He guesses all these different ways of, of killing somebody. The officers keep telling him he's getting it wrong. Finally, Brendan has no idea what to say, and he sort of throws up his hands and says, we cut off her hair, you know, <laughs> just totally at sea. And he has to be told by the interrogators that, that she was shot in the head. 
that is such a classic sequence. I have seen that dozens of times in dozens of cases where somebody thinks has been sort of made to think it's in their best interest to do what these cops want, trying to give them the story that they want, and just can't come up with it because they weren't there. It's so classic. I, I worked with intellectually challenged kids uh, before, so people who were Brendan's age, and I I can totally see when watching the quote-unquote confession on uh, making a murderer how uh, Brendan was wanting to help those officers come to their conclusion, you know, and and that's why he was throwing out those guesses. I, I I've, like I say, I've worked with those kids, and that's what they want. They want to be able to help. And, yeah, uh, they want to please the authority figure, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's what I always say about this case. You don't have to be a lawyer to, to kind of get what's going on with Brendan, right? You, you need to be a parent, right? Maybe a mom or a dad or a teacher or a neighbor or somebody who knows someone like, like Brendan. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, after the series came out, I had the very, very good fortune of being able to travel around, around the globe to talk to people about making a murderer and wrongful convictions and Brendan and false confessions and all of these issues. And wherever I spoke, <laughs> literally across the globe, people would come up to me afterwards and say, you know what, I know someone like Brendan. I have a Brendan in my life. And my heart broke when I saw him doing just that, just trying to please these, these older, you know, authority figures. Um, you know, it's, it's Brendan himself who moves people. And um, people have got it right. He's a great guy. Why can't, why can't, um you know, the prosecutor or the court or the system put uh, an adult in the room? Why can't they assign someone? Because, you know, I'm, I don't want to put down uh, Brendan's mother or any parent figure there, but to leave your child who's got challenges, never mind just being 16 years old, in an interrogation for hours with, you know, the, these uh, policemen, uh, why doesn't there have to be an adult there? To kind of, you know, kind of, kind of level it out because there's nobody on his side. Then I think level level it out is exactly the right phrase. It's obviously not a level playing field when you've got any kid, like you say, let alone somebody with disabilities like Brendan. Um, here's the interesting thing, and this is something that not a lot of people know: only about 13 or 14 states require police right now to try to contact a parent before questioning a child. So in the vast majority of states, there's no requirement that a parent get notified. That's something we're working on changing very much. Um, I know I'm a mom. I've got two boys. And, uh, you know, I've, I, I would be horrified <laughs> to find them being, being questioned, being put in any sort of legal jeopardy without my knowledge. But that happens in a lot of these cases. But you're also right that um, sometimes a parent's protection isn't enough. You know, parents are susceptible to these interrogation tactics just like their kids are. You know, parents can be sort of confused and, and, and that sort of a thing. So the reform that we, we really push for at the Center on Wrongful Convictions is to require a lawyer in the interrogation room for kids. Now, this was the law in zero states before making a murderer. But after the world saw what happened to Brendan, um, I'm pleased to say that two states so far, Illinois and California, have passed the first laws in the country requiring lawyers in the interrogation room for certain kids. It is, you know, those are early steps, those are baby steps, but they are long overdue, long overdue to protect, you know, all of our kids. Hmm. Now, now you've been doing a, um, 
podcast now, uh, Wrongful Conviction Podcasts. How did that start out? Like, uh, why why do a podcast? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, for me, it, it did have everything to do, again, with making a murderer. You know, when when those filmmakers showed up in Brendan's case and started filming us in court, we didn't solicit it, we didn't ask for it, we sort of had no idea who they were until they told us they wanted to make a series about it. And when the series was released years and years later, you know, we didn't expect it to light the world on fire the way it did. You know, suddenly, you know, suddenly after working on Brendan's case for nine years, suddenly the world (laughs) was saying his name. The world was having that same transformative moment that I had had when I was a law student, right? They were watching the same videos and sitting up bolt upright on their couches just like I had done and saying, this is not right. This is not okay. What can I do to help to make sure this doesn't happen again? And when I saw firsthand how this this Netflix series, you know, transformed the way so many people thought about the criminal justice system and the way that it interacts with, you know, people who maybe aren't rich or powerful or well-connected, um, I thought to myself, well, geez, if Brendan's story can energize people this much for change, I got a lot more stories like that, stories that are just as engrossing, just as fascinating, just as disturbing, and just as motivating, right, to, to get people organized, to get people calling for action, calling for change, getting people aware of the system, aware of what their rights are. And so that's what led Steve Drizzen and myself to create our podcast, Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. You know, we've worked on so many of these false confession cases that have videos from inside the interrogation room that are just, just like Brendan's, sometimes even worse. And... So we use that real interrogation audio to tell um, 12 different stories of, of false confessions of people who, you know, were manipulated into falsely confessing inside the interrogation room, uh, who were convicted on the basis of those confessions, and then, you know, sometimes over the course of years, even decades, fought and fought and fought for the truth until they were finally exonerated. It's they're incredible stories. Every single last one of them. Each episode includes an interview with the person who, whose story we tell, the person who falsely confessed. Um, a little check-in with them. You know, what did your experience mean to you? What are you doing with your free life now? And you wouldn't believe some of the answers we're getting. You know, it's like after spending 30 years in prison, little things like, you know, feeling the sunlight on your face or smelling freshly cut grass. That's that's what means everything to these folks. It's really, really inspiring. How do you choose these cases in, in the sense of uh, there's a lot of people that say they were um, convicted wrongly or confessed uh, because of whatever reason, intimidation. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons. So how is it that you make a decision to follow up on a case as opposed to not like what, what what's what's kind of the the line you draw on or criteria you use sure absolutely so if uh, if i take a, a step back and answer as a lawyer you know at our at our center on wrongful convictions we get about 3500 letters every year from inmates all around the country who say that they were wrongly convicted who say that they're innocent and who ask us to look into their cases um there are five of us <laughs> at the center, so we can take very, very, very few cases, right? We are a pro bono organization. We don't charge anyone 
who we represent. You know, Steve and I have never charged Brendan or his family a single nickel for the work we've done on his behalf and, and, and proud of it, frankly. Um, so we, we are very careful, anyway, to pick cases not only where we believe in folks' innocence, but where we think we can really help. There's something that we can actually do to make a difference. Um, we wouldn't believe the cases that come across our doorstep, right? It's not a case of, of just sort of magically being able to discern somebody is innocent when other people haven't been able to. We have cases come to us where people confessed uh, during interrogation, right? People confessed to rape and murder, and then the DNA from the rape victim's body was tested before trial and excluded them definitively, and they were convicted anyway on the basis of their confession. You know, that's usually a pretty good sign that that case is worth looking into. We had a case like that a few years ago, the Dixmore Five. It was a case of five teenagers who were interrogated about, about the rape and murder of their 14-year-old classmate. Right? They were all interrogated. Three of them ended up confessing and implicating the whole group. Right? They all go down for this crime. But before any of them went to trial, the DNA from this rape victim is tested, and it's not any of the five teenagers. But they still go down based on the confessions, spend close to 20 years in prison before we and a couple of other innocence organizations around the country decided to take their cases. And at that point, we took the DNA sample from the victim and ran it through the national DNA database, which didn't exist 20 years ago, but now it does. So we were able to run it through the database and get an exact match to a single adult male repeat sex offender who lived a couple blocks away from the victim and who had a history of raping and attacking other women, including after this 14-year-old girl was attacked. Um, you know, it's, it's signs and signals like that when a case just doesn't make sense, especially where the scientific evidence doesn't make sense. You know, that's, that's what makes you at least take a second look at a case. Mm. And, and I know one thing that you guys cover a lot or talk about is, uh, you know, what they call junk science. Um, how difficult is that to get reversed when they have, uh, you know, there's different science that comes out, or they call it science, that uh, actually get people convicted. You know, there's, there's things that aren't really that conclusive. Um, uh, how, can you, how can you get people to think differently about some of these things? No, it's really interesting when you get into the criminal justice system and start you know, reading about cases, reading trial transcripts, police reports, you know, the, the real sort of nuts and bolts of how our system works. There are so many things we think are true <laughs> about forensic science and, frankly, about the functioning of the, of the criminal justice system. So many things we all think are true that it turns out are sort of based on myths or old information, outdated information. You know, one great example is... You know, we all believe we, no one would falsely confess. Well, now we're learning that this happens way more often than we think. And junk science is another really good example. You know, it's uh, another host on the Wrongful Conviction Podcast Network. Josh Dubin has a series about junk science that, that people should check out. It's excellent, where he, where he brings on experts who deconstruct a lot of the scientific evidence um, that is used all the time in jury trials, stuff like blood spatter, evidence or gunshot residue evidence, right? This kind of stuff that we're all used to hearing about on CSI. 
but it turns out there's there's more and more reasons to question the accuracy of a lot of this kind of evidence. Yeah, I saw that with the, uh, I think it was an episode on false confessions, that um, something about the teeth marks um, not being reliable in, in a case that someone got put away with. So um, I yeah, found that... I, that's it, another... Because I always thought it was reliable. I always thought it was... Of course you did. I did, well, too, before I started learning about all this stuff. Fun, right? You know, I mean, all of us thought that stuff was reliable. Um, I did, too, before I, before I started learning about this world. Um, so it, it's an incredible world when you start sort of peeling off the layers of myths and, and just outdated beliefs, right, that have been at the core of the way our criminal justice system works for so long. You know, that's one reason why being a wrongful conviction lawyer is so exciting because you can you can say not only did was there a mistake in this one case um but let's figure out what this tells us about the whole system and how we can make it better and that's really what i'm focused on in my work and, and in our podcast too yeah i you know it may it kind of if i get into it uh and watch a series like that or any of them i i start to feel overwhelmed i start thinking holy cow there's so much BS out there, and and um, with that uh, false confession series, there was a lot of. Um, I have a lot of um, true crime writers and and people that uh, I'm friends with on social media or interact with. There's quite a bit of blowback to that. A lot of people that uh, say that uh, these shows are wrong. They're not doing it right. They're only showing you part of it. Um, how do you answer to something like that? Yeah, you know, I think that is true of a lot of the true crime shows that are out there, frankly, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot you can say about the true crime genre, right, about ways it's, it's interesting and compelling and maybe some ways in which it can feel sort of cheap and sleazy sometimes, too. Yeah. Um, when it comes to our stories, the stories we tell, our false confession stories in our podcast are based on real video of interrogations, you know, so the video shows what it shows. And it's based on DNA evidence. The stories we tell are people who've been proven innocent by DNA. Um, and that DNA very often has, has identified the real perpetrators. So, you know, we, we tell stories that are backed up by video evidence and by science. And that, in fact, are some of the most sort of prominent cases of wrongful conviction in the country. Because in, in many ways, you know, when you, when you hear about these false confession cases, when you listen to these interrogation videos, you know, they can be some of the most disturbing cases of wrongful conviction, you're actually seeing an innocent person, you know, have their words used against them. And, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating and, and disturbing. Yeah. So you're in season 12 now. What are, what, are, what are some of the cases you're covering for the new season? Yes. So the episode that we uh, just released yesterday is one I'm particularly proud of. Actually, you can Check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The episode we dropped yesterday was um, the story of two intellectually disabled brothers from North Carolina who were interrogated after a little girl from their community was found horrifically murdered. Um, and these, these two guys were very disabled. One of them had an IQ about half that uh, of, of Brendan Dassey, if that kind of helps you figure it out. Mm. And they ended up signing confessions written out by the cops uh, that they couldn't even read. And um, not only were they convicted on the basis of these confessions, but the older of the two brothers, the 19-year-old, was sent to death row in North Carolina. Turns out that the prosecutor, the DA who had prosecuted these kids, was written up in the Guinness Book of World Records as the deadliest DA 
right? One of the district attorneys in the country <laughs> who is, I guess, most prolific at seeking the death penalty, right? Exactly. That's yeah. what I want to be. <laughs> there you go, exactly. <laughs> and he, you know, he sent 47 people to mm. death row. Come to find out years later, more than 10 of those convictions were reversed for prosecutorial misconduct. Um, after those, after his cases started getting reversed, some really great lawyers got a hold of these guys' case, um, and of course retested the DNA from this little girl's body, and found it hit to a serial rapist who had been preying on other women in that exact area in, in, in a manner almost identical to the way this girl was 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 killed. Um, but in the meantime, what happened before they got that DNA hit to the real perpetrator? You know, the Supreme Court was having a debate. Um, years after these guys were convicted, they were having a debate about whether we should have the death penalty, right? Whether the death penalty is, should be constitutional. And one of the justices held up these two brothers from South, from North Carolina, who were at that time sitting on death row, and he said, if, you know, basically these are the poster children for the death penalty, these two brothers, because of this, the horrificness of this crime. Oof. Turns out then the DNA is tested and they were innocent the whole time the whole time um so it's, a, it's an incredible story it kind of says a lot about the conversations we're having right now in, the, in our society and uh you know what happens when two brothers like these good men very good men run up against some pretty powerful forces in our system hmm. did you ever did you ever touch off on the uh west memphis three yes actually i was part of the legal team that represented the supposed ringleader of the West Memphis Three, Damian Eccles. Damian's still a, good, a very good friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've, I've had contact with him a couple of times. Man, you know, I was going to do, or we were going to do kind of a, an, an episode having different people involved in it and people that went on both sides. I cannot believe how aggressive the people are that are against him. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the thing, right? What happened... In, in that case, right, this is this 1993 case involving three eight-year-old boys from West Memphis, Arkansas, who were who were killed brutally. Um, the crime is bad. <laughs> yeah. It's about as bad as it gets. I mean, I don't think anyone on the planet would disagree with that. So there is this sort of natural human instinct. We all feel it, right? All of us who are parents. Um, I've got an eight-year-old boy myself right now. <laughs> all of us who are parents feel that that anger and that, that rage at, at the crime itself. But what you see in wrongful conviction cases is that, 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 that anger and uh, the moral certainty that you feel about how wrong this was that this happened to these little kids, that moral certainty about the wrongness of the crime can turn into moral certainty that someone's got to pay. And that attitude can drive wrongful convictions in, in some of these really horrific cases. You just want someone to pay. And if the police say, hey, we think it might be this guy, it's all too easy for any of us, right, to focus on, well, you know, if there's some evidence against these guys, we want to we want to stri- string them up. Um, in the West Memphis Three case, of course, as in many other cases, there's no real evidence linking the three teenagers who were convicted, no reliable evidence at all. So I totally understand people's need to hold somebody to justice for what happens. But that, that, that emotional feeling can really distort investigations and distort the system's search for the truth. 
Yeah, I, I was surprised at how aggressive. You know, people really believe they're into the Satanist world and everything, and, and they're just, um, wow. Jeez. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I know all three guys very, very well. They're lovely people. Um, yeah, I've yeah. spent a lot of time with them. Um, you know, it's a real shame. It's a real shame. You know, when, when uh, I was working on that case, and as well as Brenton's case, which I'm still working on, you know, you get... You do get a lot of blowback, a lot of anger from people who, again, are responding to the horribleness of the crime. And it just bears repeating, when I do these cases, my God, (laughs) my heart goes out to the victim's families. You know, everybody does. Um, But defending someone you believe is innocent is just as important as finding the person who actually did it. That's what that's. I just don't know how they can sometimes move on with their lives after um, being a spectacle for so many years. Uh, that, that must be the most difficult because cause if, if I get that kind of blowback just from people online, what's it like for someone like, let's say, Damien Eccles to get out there and get a job or to work in, and just be normal when you've got a lot of people that just hate them automatically? Totally. Totally. And, you know, Damien, um, his case was particularly high profile, so that problem was particularly acute for him. But for anyone who has been wrongly convicted, right, I mean, and a lot of these cases were high profile at the time because the crime was, was so gruesome, was so awful. Um, for anyone coming out of prison after years of being labeled publicly a killer, right, coming out from that stigma, coming out from that absolute sort of erasure from the world, it's a lot to deal yeah. with. There's a whole lot to deal with. I'm so grateful um, to, to the people that, that we work with who support people who are coming out of prison, right? Psychologists, therapists, everybody, you know, philanthropists who, who pay for housing and food. Um, you know, there's an incredible organization actually called the Sunny Center, which is run by two death row exonerees who, after each of them were exonerated off different death rows in different uh, different countries, actually, found each other post-exoneration, got married, and started this this, this concept, I guess. It's a, it's a place in Ireland, in the hills of Ireland, where recently exonerated people can go stay with them, called the Sunny Center. And they can just stay out in the, in the countryside and, you know, do those things I talked about, feel the sunshine on their face, you know, smell the grass, just get used to the rhythm of life on the outside again. It's a beautiful idea. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's the kind of support that, that people need after these experiences. Wow. Well, quite a, quite, quite a subject to cover. Um, do you have a website or do you have a place that people can come find you or find you up for your podcast? Absolutely. Our podcast is called Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And you can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Laura Nyrader. Fantastic. Um, we're going to have that up on our site as well. So people that are listening can just do one click and find out and, and listen to your podcast and follow you, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully nothing negative there. You know, it's it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And uh, um I hope I hope you continue to do well and and do such a good job. Well, thank you. I wish you all the best, and uh, it's been a real pleasure talking about this with you. 
find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 